0: Isn't that pretty? 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years before Jesus was born. Some 2,700 years ago now. The prophet Isaiah foretold of Jesus' birth, proclaiming, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's good news. It's really, really good news. Each week of Advent this year, we're going to consider a portion of this marvelous four-part name. And this morning, we'll begin with Wonderful Counselor. According to Isaiah, a child would be born, but not just any child, a wonderful child. However, this notion of wonderful literally means a wonder, a wonder of a child, as in a sign, to use a biblical language, or a miracle. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and the word translated as wonderful has in mind something more closely resembling resembling supernatural, a supernatural occurrence. In other words, it's not simply that the child's counsel will be really terrific, not wonderful or stupendous in that sense, but rather he himself is miraculous. He is supernatural. In fact, some ancient language scholars suggest that the word translated as wonderful is a name all to itself. So that there are really five attributes of this child being listed by Isaiah. Five names meant to describe his personality, his character, his ministry to us. The point being that this child is supernatural. His counsel to us is supernatural. It's out of this world. Do we see the wonder of Jesus? We just sang the first Noel. Noel comes from the Latin meaning to be born. It's God being born. The first Noel, that time when God was born among us. Can we close our eyes and imagine that supernatural event, that reality? Being separated from Isaiah's prophecy of this coming miraculous birth by 2,700 years, not to, be, not to mention being separated from the birth of the child himself some 2,000 years, it can be hard to see the wonder. Even people of his own day, Jesus' own day, struggled to understand the supernatural work that God was doing in and through the birth of Jesus. For this reason, G.K. Chesterton, a British journalist of the 20th century, what do you think of that hair? How many have tried their hand at Chesterton? Gosh, I'm sorry. Every year, I'll try my hand at Chesterton, and it's just, it looks like he's hair, uh, right? His writing, uh, just at a different level, just really hard for me to reach. Nonetheless, he argued that we must engage our imagination if we want to see the wonder of what God is doing in and through Christ, How is your imagination? Someone recently asked me, they had lost a loved one, and asked me, help me to picture heaven, where my loved one is. And I encouraged the reading of certain passages, but then I said, you've got to engage your imagination. Spend some time closing your eyes and filling your mind with the images of what's described there. How is our imagination? Are we open? to seeing what is wonderful. To give you a feel for the impact of Chesterton's writings, his book titled The Everlasting Man, do we have that picture? Yeah. This book was described by C.S. Lewis as the primary book used by God to move Lewis from atheist to believer in Christ. Now, when Chesterton describes the importance of imagination, and Lewis went on to be arguably uh, the 20th century's greatest apologist for, uh, for the resurrection of Christ and for who Christ is. Chesterton, when he described the importance of imagination, he doesn't mean the ability to picture something unreal like a unicorn or a fairy. That's not what he's arguing for. Rather, he means... The ability to picture something clearly and more fully real. Utterly wonderful and real. For that, imagination is needed. And Chesterton contends because we're either too close to an object to see it for what it is, or too far from an object to make out its intricacies, the design, the beauty of it. We've got to engage our imaginations. For example, if someone's hand is in your face, so close to your face, then you can't really see that the hand's even connected to a body. That's why the experience of some of Jesus' contemporaries was so confounding to them. They were too close to the subject, the person of Christ, unable to see the forest for the trees. Maybe you've heard that. Expressing. And imagination was needed to look into the Old Testament and see that God was caring, fulfilling those promises through the man, Jesus. For us, it's not that we're too close. But rather that we're too far away to make out the details of the person, his true wonder, it's like standing too far back from a painting, which makes it blurred. If you've seen the painting titled A Sunday Afternoon by Surratt, one of my favorites, in the, he was a uh, pointillism, right? These tiny little dots come together to make the whole. The closer you get, the, the richer the detail and the intricacy of the artist's work, but you've got, you've got to have a proximity appropriate for, for appreciating it. If you get too far back, it's blurred. You get too close, you just see the singular points. You've got to, in our imaginations, what's needed to engage. The function of imagination, Chesterton says, is not so much to make wondrous facts as to make facts wondrous or to see with wonder what is real. He goes on to say, the trumpet of imagination is like the trumpets of the resurrection calling the dead out of their grave. If you feel far from Jesus and unable to make out this morning the rich detail of his person, unable to appreciate the intricacies and the beauty of God's work through him on on our behalf, we're praying that you'll be able to see more clearly and more fully the brush strokes of the subtle splendor of the artist's work of salvation throughout history through Jesus. It's because of, the, if because of the relative distance of some 2,000 years, God's work through Jesus seems blurred and impersonal. Make no mistake, everything about this man is wondrous, supernatural, certainly his birth. Yes, Jesus prophesied. Yes, I said. Say, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus seven hundred years before he was even born. But Micah, the Old Testament prophet and contemporary of Isaiah, named the very little village that he would be born in seven hundred years. But you, Bethlehem, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who'll be ruler over Israel. Micah. Names the town in which this wonderful baby will be born. Of course, Jesus is born to a virgin who conceives supernaturally, wonderfully. Through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, his delivery, wondrous. Heralded by the appearing of a star that leads wise people to him heralded by angels singing courses can our imaginations help us here absolutely his entire life was wonderful not just his birth but his entire life miracle upon miracle that he worked all with the aim of illustrating his deity he healed the sick lepers cripples the blind deaf mute he walked on water he calmed storms he fed thousands with just a few loaves and fishes his dying was wonderful that is to say supernatural also foretold by Isaiah the prophet in chapter 53 he was born to be bruised for our iniquities Yes, he was falsely accused, unjustly arrested, yet he didn't lash out. He didn't lash out. In fact, if you read John 18 closely, he puts the ear of a guy back on his head while he's being arrested. They're binding his hands behind him, I assume. And he sticks this guy's ear back on that Peter had lopped off with a sword in an attempt to defend Christ against these arresters. Put that sword away, Christ said, and healed the man's ear. It was the high priest's servant. That's wonderful. At the time of his death, the sky darkened, tombs were opened, Tombs were opened at the time of his death. Read closely the gospel narratives. And the dead came out of their tombs and entered Jerusalem, meeting with many. And the curtain of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, symbolically representing that the presence of God is being made available to all through faith in Christ. Not just his death, but also his resurrection was wonderful. Foretold throughout the Old Testament, Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. King David sang a song, Psalm 16, said that God would not let his Holy One see decay. In other words, but would raise him, Psalm 1610. The resurrection was witnessed by over 500 people. His ascension was wonderful. After the resurrection, Jesus spent some 40 days meeting with his disciples, talking with them about the kingdom of God, and then he's taken up before their very eyes into the clouds, and angels appear and coach the disciples along and say, you're going to see him return in just the same manner. Finally, his church is wonderful. And by that, I do not mean stupendous or even terrific. I mean supernatural. There are lots in the church. There is lots in the church that's ugly, but I mean supernatural. The Spirit of Jesus was sent to the first disciples ten days after the ascension at the Feast of Pentecost, At that time, they spoke in tongues, and people from all over the Mediterranean world heard Peter's preaching and said, what must we do to be saved? And some 3,000 come to faith in Jesus that day, and the church is launched by the Spirit, and the church continues because of the Spirit, not because we're particularly righteous, but because of what God's doing, His mercy. Lord, open our eyes to see with increased clarity the wonderful work you have done, are doing, and will continue to do in the days ahead through Jesus. Isaiah originally offered this description of Jesus during the reign of King Ahaz. If you're unfamiliar with the ministry of Isaiah, he served some 40 years as a prophet to the nation of Israel, the year 740 to 700 uh, years before Christ, before the birth of Christ, so 740 to 700 BC. The nature of Isaiah's ministry was preaching primarily, in fact, the biblical work of a prophet is not, was not dissimilar to what we experience each week through pulpit ministry, that is, the proclamation of God's word. And it's not exactly the same, but it's similar. Prophets were charged by God to call the people of Israel to repentance and warn them of God's certain judgment if they didn't turn from their sins. In this sense, they're forth They're telling the truth. It's most similar to our experience, or what should our, be, our experience as we uh, lift Christ up and preach to one another. But from time to time, Isaiah would also foretell. He would prophesy, tell of coming events in the future. What we most often think about when we hear the word prophet is the foretelling of future events. Isaiah 9 follows a long section dedicated to forth-telling, truth-telling, in which Isaiah tells the truth about Israel's unfaithfulness in God's coming judgment against them. That's why chapter 9 begins with uh, nevertheless. I'll read it in just a moment. Isaiah shifts gears, and he's been talking about God's coming judgment and the faithful, faithlessness of Israel, and he says, Nevertheless, God's going to show mercy, and he begins to foretell of God's coming work through this wonderful baby that'll be born. Why this mixture of forthtelling and foretelling? Well, the Old Testament book of 2 Kings offers a short biography of Ahaz, details this king's faithlessness. For example, he burned incense. And he offered sacrifices to pagan deities. He remodeled Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem in order to better suit it for pagan worship. He confiscated all the gold and the silver in the temple and mailed it off as a bribe to an Assyrian king for protection. Rather than depending upon Yahweh for protection, he even offered one of his sons as sacrifice to the pagan god Molech, wanting protection. Of course, speed of the leaders, speed of the followers, the wickedness of Ahaz led to the wickedness of the nation. The nation as a whole, by and large, was worshiping pagan deities. And It's against this backdrop that Isaiah tells of God's coming judgment, but also of God's coming care through a supernatural counselor, a wonderful counselor, who lead Israel out of darkness into light. Do you feel lost this morning? Unsure of what to do next or how to make your way through life? Many in our day and age struggle with significance. Do you feel as though you're groping around in the dark because of your own or others' sinfulness? Reeling, perhaps, from consequences? Follow along as I read Isaiah 9. We'll take just the first couple verses here. Nevertheless, so you're unfaithful, Isaiah 1 through 8. You've been unfaithful. Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he'll honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Pause there for just a quick moment. The birthplace of Bethlehem was detailed by Micah, 700 years before it, was, it took place. But Jesus didn't grow up in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth, which is, of course, uh, matching a prophecy that the gospel writer details. Raised in Nazareth, he would be called a Nazarene. Then as an adult, he would leave Nazareth and he would launch his public ministry out of the city of Capernaum. So born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, launches his public ministry out of Capernaum, a town on the Sea of Galilee. Guess where the cities of Nazareth and Capernaum are? It shouldn't surprise us that Nazareth is in the land of Zebulon and Capernaum in Nephtali. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. In the future, he will honor Galilee of all the nations. Let's continue, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. That's to be our experience through Christ a bountiful harvest. They rejoice before you as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and it, holding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, while our sin may not be the same as King Ahaz's, we're all born into sin, and as a result, we grope around in the darkness looking for its remedy. We look to cope because of the brokenness of this fallen world. Many believe that better education is what's needed for our sinful attitudes and actions to be eradicated. But all evidence is to the contrary. More people have access to better education than ever before. Yet selfishness continues to grow unabated. The truth is education simply helps us to order our lives in the darkness of this world. Much like a blind person becomes familiar with their surroundings, In order to stop bumping into things. We don't step off the edge of a tall building because we know the law of gravity. That's education. Informing and ordering our understanding of a broken and fallen world so that we can live with some semblance of normalcy and get along Education is certainly good, it's just not the solution for what most deeply ails mankind. And I take aim at education this morning because in DuPage County, we put a lot of hope in information, in our acquiring knowledge. But interestingly, my aim this morning from the pulpit is not primarily education. Did you know that? Sometimes on Sunday morning, I'll be down front and we're singing and I just love to hear and be a part of the singing. And the question comes to my mind, what are we doing here? What is our hope? What is our hope? Our hope this morning is not primarily education. John Foster, in his communion reflection, Quoted one of my favorite preachers, Leonard Ravenhill, Jesus came not to make bad men good. Our hope's not education. Education's necessary but insufficient for what's needed. Jesus came to make dead people alive again. That's what's needed. Supernatural is needed. We're here because we believe he's wonderful. And I don't mean simply stupendous or terrific or particularly insightful. I mean he's supernatural. God come in the flesh. A baby born to a virgin, everything about his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and the certainty of his return to claim his church is wonderful. It's supernatural. Can our eyes be opened by God's grace to see it with more clarity, more certainty? Not something fanciful like unicorns and fairies, but something that took place in time in history. God loves us, he created us, and then he came to rescue us from what ails us. And that's, that's better than just okay news. That's really, really good news. He's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Dead folks don't make any decisions. Dead folks are brought to life by the Spirit of God. That's what we're praying happens to listeners this morning. That if you're alive in Christ, the, the, the flame that's in you is fanned hotter, brighter, and larger. If you're not alive in Christ, that regeneration is the, the theological word that he brings us from death to life, out of darkness into light. hmm so I'll just pause and say if you've never trusted in Christ and perhaps you've been trusting in education and information and just the proliferation of technology some are believing that's the greatest hope man if that's what you're trusting in and you're seeing its vacuous incompetence inability to actually change the human heart and trust in something wonderful trust in the supernatural Trusting God and what he's done through Christ. And you can start that trusting relationship just by saying, I believe. If you find in your heart welling up a desire to believe, then let your mouth profess what your heart's believing. And Scripture says you'll be saved. You're being saved. In fact, if you have the desire to say it, he's, he's at work saving you. Let your mouth profess what your heart's, Romans 10, 9, what your heart's believing. I sat with a man this week who has just recently began trusting in the supernatural counselor. And he described the change in his appetites. And he really described it as, I'm not sure how this happened. He said, I no longer want to lie, cheat, act out sexually, or take revenge on people that hurt me. His desires have been changed. Yes, Jesus is a great teacher. I'm not down on education. I, I'm, I'm paying for my children's or trying to and have my own graduate degrees. I'm not down. It's necessary but insufficient. It was Jesus who taught us do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who persecute you. Right? The most brilliant ethicist that's ever lived, Jesus. But he didn't just teach. He shed his blood. He shed his blood. In other words, he knew teaching's not sufficient. Something wonderful has to take place. Something supernatural has to take place. There has to be a transaction that takes place. And then he was raised from the grave three days later. It's a mistake to think that Jesus was only an ethicist. His own words, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't be stumbling around through the darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. John 8, 12. Isaiah 9, 2, he says, there's a great light coming. They walk in darkness, have seen this great light. When it comes to dealing with sin, we need more than advice. We need counsel, folks. We need counsel. I've done my share of counseling, folks, and I've sat on the counselor's couch. We need counsel. But we need supernatural counsel. We need otherworldly counsel. And so when I used to go to see a counselor, I would pray, give this counselor wisdom beyond themselves by your Holy Spirit to walk me out of darkness into your wonderful light. And when I sit with somebody to counsel them, I say, Lord, I pray I'm not this person's greatest hope. I hope that your spirit's at work here. The wonderful counselor, Jesus, understands our weaknesses, our struggles, our temptations, having experienced them himself as a man, yet remaining sinless. When we're looking for wisdom and insight into the darkened hearts of humanity, There's no one more qualified than our Savior. There's no one more compassionate. There's no one more capable. What should our response be? Again, if you've never received the wonderful counselor, begin that trusting relationship this morning. Trust in him. Simple prayer of admitting your need for counsel. John Foster laid it out here. We're sinful we'll either deny it or we'll proclaim it and turn to God and let him care for us in it. If you have received Christ, if you're trusting in him, then come fully into his presence or more fully into his presence, increasingly into his presence. In my house, I've got a light that's on a dimmer switch, right? Up or down. And... um, some of us are, are in Christ but on dim. Turn it up. Let the presence of the person of God flood your life. Let this Advent season be a, a moment in which you're marked and come more fully into the light of Christ and enjoy the light. John eight twelve right? Stop stumbling around in the darkness. Follow him more closely. Follow him more passionately. Let's stop toying with sin and let's go forward into the light that is glorious Amen? Amen? All right, I'll pray for us. Lord, well, you're good to us, you care for us, thank you for who Jesus is. Father, we need to activate our imaginations, even as our eyes are closed in prayer. Help us see the wonderful things that you've done for us, whether it's the birth, the sinless life, the death of Jesus the resurrection, the ascension. Father, help us picture his coming again soon and live in light of his coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, we'll sing together.